Good evening, everyone, and thank you um, for coming to Cornerstone. I don't know how many of you are at the uh, Trunk or Treat. Um, what a joyous time that was. Um, I think I might have lost my voice a little bit screaming with the kids as they were playing the games in our trunk, uh, but what a blessing that was. Let's begin. On June 6th in 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, issued the following order of the day. This message went out to everyone under his command. This is what he said. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, you are about to embark on a great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 1941. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, your devotion to duty, and your skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and, may, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. This order, given on June 6th in 1944, launched the invasion of Normandy, France. Like the rest of Europe, it was occupied by the Nazi German army during World War II. During that invasion, over 11,000 Allied aircraft flew 14,000 missions bringing troops, paratroopers, and supplies, and bombing the enemy positions. Here's a picture of the paratroopers as they're floating onto the battlefield. Over 6,000 sea vessels from the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and other nations helped deliver troops and supplies across the English Channel onto the mainland in the beaches in France. Look at all of those boats. Combined by air and ship, 156,000 troops landed in Europe that day. The battle was intense, especially on the Normandy beaches where the troops arrived ashore by amphibious landing craft. Can you just imagine how intense that was for them? The price of victory was high, but it became the turning point of, of, um, of, for the U.S. and its allies in World War II. It would take almost a year before Germany would surrender, but this was the moment, the beginning of the march towards victory. During World War II, the mission was very clear. Everyone did their part, from the bravest soldier on the front line to the people back home who are working, putting together supplies and munitions, 
to youth who were helping the war effort through recycling. Even children did their part knitting. I thought Amanda would like that one. Everybody did their part to bring victory. Now, you and I can get excited when we hear stories about brave people doing amazing things and leading to victory. But we need to realize that just like the soldiers under General Eisenhower's command, we have a mission also. It's a mission from Jesus and the stakes are higher than even those for World War II. Let's look at today's text where we'll, we'll see the marching orders. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Jonathan just read it. We're going to start at verse 1. And the first thing we're going to see is how Jesus prepares his followers to go out on a mission. Luke, 10, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. Now it says after this. This comes right after the passage in chapter nine where the disciples are, some are saying that they'll follow Jesus everywhere, but others are a lot more hesitant. They say, well, first let me bury my dead, or first let me take care of my father and mother. Jesus is very strict with these. He tells them, no one who's not ready is fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus, after this point where he's just warned his disciples that they need to be fully devoted to the mission, sets aside 72 to go out. Now it says 72 others. What does it mean, others? Well, if you go back further in chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus had recently just sent out 12, his 12 closest friends, his apostles, the 12 disciples, and sent them out on the very same mission. So why would he send 12 and then send another 72? I think the reason is the mission was bigger than just for his 12 closest friends. It needed more troops for this mission. Now, the number 72 is really interesting because it's very similar to the number of nations that's listed in the Old Testament back in the book of Genesis. It's almost like Jesus is sending a picture, he's painting a picture of one of his followers for every nation in the world. It's like he's doing a worldwide mission. Now, he tells them in verse two, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus is saying it's a huge harvest. It's a gigantic job. It's going to take many more workers than even the 72 that he's sending out now. The harvest is ready, and we need to send more. Pray for more workers. Now, think about what happens if this pattern continues. First, 12 go out. Then another 72 go out, but they're told, pray for some more. Then some more come, and they go out, and they also pray for some more. If this repeats over and over again, eventually, 
Every possible follower of Jesus is being prayed for to go out in the harvest. Jesus is appointing his followers to go. And it's all of his followers. If you're a Jesus follower, there's someone praying for you to go somewhere. Could be far away or it could be just next door. But there's a mission. But what is Jesus sending them out for? What is he preparing them for? Let's go to verse 3. Jesus says, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. That doesn't seem like a very great way to get a lot of volunteers. Eisenhower warned his troops in his order of the day that the task wouldn't be easy, the enemy was well-trained, the enemy would fight savagely. That's not the typical way to raise up a big group of volunteers to go out and do a tough mission to tell them that it's going to be dangerous. But Eisenhower wanted his troops to know that there were real dangers ahead. He wanted them to be serious about counting the cost their very lives. This is a photograph of Eisenhower briefing his troops the day before the invasion of Normandy. He was telling them straight off, this is it. This is the beginning of the march towards victory. It's very dangerous, but it's up to you. The troops loved Eisenhower's care for them, his honesty, his love for them. He was, he was a tender commander, and they followed him. Jesus is our commander. He wants us to know that what he's asking us to do is difficult, it's dangerous. He wants us to see with open eyes where he's sending us because the mission is really important. It's really important. Now, how important is this mission? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Now, this is odd. Jesus is telling uh, his followers that they shouldn't worry about a lot of details. If Jesus' followers were about to go on a trip to the next, next town, don't you think they ought to bring a money bag to pay for their expenses? Don't you think they ought to bring some extra shoes in case they have to go on to the next town? It's like Jesus is saying that they don't even have time to pack their suitcase. It's time to go. You've got to go. They've got to focus on the mission and go. Now, I have to say that International travel is one of my favorite things to do. I love not only going, I love the planning for it, the preparing of it. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? Are we going to take a plane? Are we going to take a train? Are we going to take a subway? Are we going to walk? I love planning all those details. But Jesus sends his followers with none of that planning. In the next half of verse 4, he says... Do not greet anyone on the road. They're supposed to be so fully devoted to getting where they're going that they can't even have any side trips. They can't have any distractions. It's go. That's how important this mission is. They're supposed to be so fully devoted that they obey their commander and go without a lot of planning. Now, 
when I go traveling, I want to know where I'm staying. What hotel reservations do I need to make in advance? But not so with Jesus. Verse 5, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So Jesus' followers are being told that when they get to where they're supposed to be, they're supposed to find a house that will welcome them, issue peace to that house, and if there's a peaceful person there that will welcome them, that will give them sanctuary, that's their accommodation. That's where they're supposed to stay. They don't need to look out for a softer bed or for better meals or for better drinks or a better place to stay. Take the first house that will support you. Can you imagine traveling like that? What if the first year that Pat and I went to Russia together, I told her, we're just going to get there and if someone decides to give us a place to stay, that's where we're staying. I think she would have said, Anthony, you're crazy. We're not going to travel like that. But that's the way Jesus prepares his followers. He's saying the mission is so urgent, it's so pressing, they need to go and to trust that God will supply their needs at each step. Now, Cornerstone is really blessed to have many families who have participated in short-term mission trips. Here's some photos from three trips to three different places. At the bottom, you can see the team that recently went to Champfleury, uh, France. Uh, we have people in our congregation who've been there. Jonathan, Monica, who's downstairs. I know Amy Godfrey is down there. Anybody else who's, who's gone there? Micah, you've gone, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Stephanie's gone, yep. Now, um, the people who go to Champfleury in France to work with the youth camp there, I hear that the food is pretty good. Would you say that was true? Is it good food there? You think so? Yeah. Well, other families have gone to Haiti. Um, the picture in the upper left-hand side is, uh, I think, from the most recent Haiti trip. I know most of the Bradshaw family has been over the years. Um, Andrew and Amanda have gone uh, to Haiti. Uh, Diana has been a couple times, I think. Um, Anne and Allison just came back from this trip, right? Now, when you guys went on this trip, I don't know what they feed you in Haiti. What was the food like? Was it good or bad? She gives us a thumbs up. All right, so the food in Haiti was good. All right. Others in our church, of course, have been to Russia. Um, now, uh, that includes all of the Cordemanches. Um, of course, Amy McDonald has been to Russia. Well, I guess I can't call you McDonald anymore. It's got to be uh, Barodkin. Um, Vitaly, you don't count. You were born there. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've been on the trip to Russia. Come on, don't be shy. All right, a few of you. Now, I don't know if I want to ask you what you think the food like was over there. I thought it was delicious, but, uh, you know, I've heard from my family that some were kind of, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> well, the topic of eating in a foreign country is an interesting one because you want to make sure you've got something to eat. But this is what Jesus says to his followers when they go off on their mission. Verse 8, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. Jesus is saying there should be no fussy eaters on such a mission. There's no planning, uh, there's no luxuries, there's no planned accommodations, there's no food selection. It seems a bit harsh. 
Jesus said it would be dangerous. General Eisenhower thought his troops were ready for his mission. Does Jesus really think that we're ready for this one? It sounds really hard. Are we ready to do what Jesus asks? Well, so far we've seen that Jesus prepares his followers to go out on his mission. That's the first point. He does it by appointing them to go to, to, uh, to multiply disciples. He tells them that the mission's going to be dangerous, and he tells them they have to totally focus on accomplishing it, not worrying about traveling, not worrying about what to bring, not worrying about where to stay or what to eat. But what is this mission really? What are they going to go do on this mission? Well, let's look in verses 9 through 15. We're going to find out that Jesus is telling them that their mission is to spread the good news. Starting at verse 9. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, this is interesting. This is the same mission that Jesus gave the 12 uh, back in chapter 9. Back there, it says that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So first here it says, heal the sick who are there. This is doing the work that Jesus' disciples had seen him do as he went out among the towns. Jesus is telling them to do what he did. Now, if you talk to folks who've been on the Haiti mission, they take the mission to heal the sick really literally. They send out medical teams with nurses and doctors and supplies to bring health care to Haitians who otherwise don't have it. Diana, I think you've been on part of those, and I'm sure you've got some amazing stories of what that's like to bring health care to people who really need it. Other trips by other teams do some other things. The Chanfleury team helps uh, with conversational English uh, with the uh, teens that are there at the youth camp, and they also run sports events and games and crafts and things like that. The team that's gone to Russia, we do the same thing. We practice English with our friends, and we do crafts and sports and activities and music. Very practical things. Things that help out. Sometimes um, all it takes is working with your hands to help someone. Doing these very practical things is a way to live out the great commandment from Matthew 22. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes loving your neighbor is bringing health care to them or digging wells. But sometimes loving your neighbor is as simple as running a baseball game for the youth that's there so that they have something to do in the summer. Whatever it is, Christ wants us to use our hands and show love to our neighbor. That's part of the mission. And you know, it doesn't have to be far away. It can be real close. It could be right in our parking lot where we opened up the trunks of our car and had a trunk or treat to invite kids in the neighborhood to become friends and their families, to share the love of Christ by playing games with them, giving out candy, maybe inviting them to church. But it's more than just acts of good works that Jesus asked them to do. He doesn't just say, heal the sick. 
He also says to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we find out that Jesus explains to the people of the day, the religious leaders, that he is the kingdom. He says that to the Pharisees in chapter 17 of of Luke. Jesus has come. He is the risen Savior King. He's defeated death, and he offers us a rescue for our sins. When we go, wherever we go, when we proclaim him by name, We're declaring the kingdom. Our acts of good works have to be accompanied by words. We have to declare the message of Christ, a message that transforms lives. It's called the good news. And the reason it's good news is because it's really good news. It's news that brings peace. Isaiah 52, 7 says it like this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Peace with God, freedom from sin, salvation, it's the best possible news of all. But besides healing and spreading good news, we find out from Jesus that the mission has some serious eternal consequences. Let's read on in verse 10. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. This is a hard message. It says that if people don't welcome your good news, don't get discouraged. Shake the dust off your feet in a warning and tell them the kingdom has come because it has, even if they accept it or not, and move on to the next destination. Jesus illustrates this in the remaining verses, verses 12 to 15. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted into the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. Now, many of you may have heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom was one of these cities in the Old Testament during the time of Lot that totally did not repent from sin. And God judged their sin. The painter John Martin, he was an English painter, and uh, painted this picture in 1852 of what the destruction of Sodom might have been like, reading about it in the the Bible. Total destruction by fire. It's terrible. It's awful. Jesus says that anyone who rejects his followers, who is rejecting us, is rejecting him, and is in for similar treatment as for Sodom. Total destruction. Now, those other cities that Jesus mentioned, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, those were all cities near the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had performed all kinds of miracles. But people didn't accept him. They didn't embrace Jesus in his hometown, in his home neighborhood. Jesus is saying that further away towns, the the coastland towns of Tyre and Sidon will do better than those that were in his midst where he had done his miracles but had rejected him. 
Our message is serious because sin is serious. Sin leads to judgment, and that judgment is destruction. Sin is the cause of death. Death physically and death spiritually. God's judgment on mankind is death because of our sin. Now, some of you know that our family recently had to put away our beloved pet a couple weeks ago. We were all, she really was a part of our family. We were all, Pat, myself, and Max were around her, holding her, crying while she took her last breath and her heart stopped. It was awful. It was awful. Death is awful. But that incident really reminds us that death as the punishment for sin is an illustration for how awful sin is. Sin is rebellion from the God who gives us life, who put everything in motion. When we reject God, we reject life. Death is the punishment. But the good news is, Christ has come and brought a solution for that judgment. That's the good news. That's the message. Our message is very heavy, but it's full of hope. It's the good news of Christ. So our mission includes deeds and words, and it's very serious. But it's full of hope because for those who will accept the gospel, it's the solution to sin. It's the solution to judgment. So to recap, we see that Jesus prepares his followers and sends them off to spread the good news. But there's more to this mission than just that. The surprising thing about the mission is the result that it happens in those who go. We'll find out that Jesus also sends us to receive God's joy. Let's look at verse 16 of chapter 10. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus says that when we go out, we are representing him. That's pretty remarkable. Even Eisenhower's troops didn't represent him. They couldn't act and, um, uh, and draw up terms for surrender. That required the commander. But Jesus says that when he sends us out, we're acting on his behalf. But it's more than that. If you jump ahead to verse 19, Jesus says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Jesus says that when we are sent, we have authority to overcome the power of the enemy. He says nothing's going to harm us. He's saying we have invincible power. Now, this is something Eisenhower could not say to his troops. He knew his troops were not invincible and there, there would be casualties. On that D-Day invasion, even though 156,000 troops made it to Europe, 4,000 died in the first day, and 6,000 more were wounded. That was just the first day. 
But Jesus says it's different for us. He has some key information that no commander on earth has ever had. He says nothing is going to harm us. Somehow he knows that. Can you believe it? If it's true, it changes everything about how we go. Let's continue reading. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. The people who came back from Jesus' mission came back with joy. They were happy because they saw God working through them to do amazing things. Now, when Eisenhower's troops met up with the Soviet troops at the Elba River in uh, April 25th, 1945, about a year after the D-Day invasion, all the soldiers were happy. The Western allies coming from the West and the Soviets coming from the East had split Nazi Germany in two. That was going to be the end of the war. In fact, only two weeks later, Germany unconditionally surrendered. You can see how the American and Soviet troops there are so happy. They know this mission is going to be accomplished. The joy of of military victory is one thing, but the victories in God's kingdom is something else. People who've come back from short-term missions, they have a joy that is hard to contain. Look at the smiles of some of our missionaries There's Amy Godfrey, I think, and um, Stephanie in France. Look at the joy on their faces. Here we have our friends, the Millers in Haiti. Look at the joy on their faces. This is Pat and myself this year in Russia with one of our friends who's not a believer, who we've been ministering to for the last, I don't know, four or five years. Look at the joy on our faces. God gives us joy in this mission. We see joy because we see results, not because we're so great, but because God is so great. You don't have to go to another country to experience that joy. This past Monday, the church plant ministry team, as part of our devotion, recited the story of how Cornerstone got to be where it was today. And by the end of the story, we were grinning like children, not because we had done anything amazing, but because God was so faithful. It's amazing what God has done here in this church. The text says the disciples came back with joy because it's really joyful. We experience joy seeing results. We just have a couple more verses to cover. Verse 18 Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is the answer why Jesus knew that nothing would harm us. The war's already over. Jesus has already seen the defeat of Satan. It's over. We just have to mop it up. It's no wonder that nothing's going to harm us. Satan is already defeated. General Eisenhower did not have information like this. He was a worrier. He wrote a special message. It was called the In Case of Failure message. It's one of the most 
It's one of the most brilliant speeches ever written, but never delivered. If you haven't read it, I urge you to go read it. It's only about four sentences long. He didn't know the outcome of the D-Day invasion, but not so with Christ. Christ knows that this mission is going to be successful. Christ is going to redeem his own. The outcome of this mission is not in doubt at all. That's such great news. It's a lot less scary than we first thought. But there's one final word from our commander. Verse 20. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the amazing part. Jesus wants us to not just focus on the temporary joys of earthly successes. He wants us to focus on the permanent joy of what this mission is about. Those who are followers of Jesus, their names are written in heaven. No one, nothing can erase them. It's the best news ever. And this mission to spread the gospel, to multiply disciples, is to spread that joy that we have with others so that they can have that joy too. This is not a mission of military conquest. This is a mission of joy. Do you feel called to this mission? Or do you feel a little bit unprepared? Do you not know what you're supposed to do? Maybe you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't want to do it. Maybe you're afraid. Jesus prepares his followers to spread the good news and to receive God's joy. That's God's word for us today. It's not a sad or scary thing. It's a mission of joy. Now, if there's something holding you back from this mission, I've got some instructions for you. There's some things I want you to do. The first thing I'd like you to do is to identify the target. Maybe God has laid on your heart someone or some place that you feel called to go or to speak to. Get that person or that place in your mind. But besides a place to go, maybe there's some obstacle that's holding you back. I want you to name that obstacle. Is it fear? Is it lack of knowledge of how to share the good news? Is it your own guilty feelings of sin? Maybe you don't have the time, you don't feel like you have opportunity. Whatever it is, name it right now. I'm telling you, I need to hear this as much as you do. Besides thinking about who or where God has placed on your heart and what's holding you back, I want you to pray. Jesus told his disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send more workers into the harvest. Pray about that specific person or that specific place and that thing that's holding you back. Maybe someone in this room is praying for you that you would go. 
Maybe this week is your D-Day when you're going to launch off on the mission. The last thing I want you to do, besides identifying the target, naming the obstacle, and praying, is I want you to spend some time this week to reflect. Make an appointment with God to read these 20 verses in Luke. A lot of you have smartphones. They have calendars in them. Make an appointment. Mark Tuesday or Wednesday, right? Luke 20, excuse me, Luke chapter 10. And I want you this week to read over those 20 verses and pray about who God has laid on your heart, what are the obstacles, and that God would somehow do something amazing and knock that over. Jesus prepares his followers to spread the good news and to receive God's joy. We at Cornerstone are called on this mission. The tide has turned. We are marching toward victory. God's joy is waiting for us. Beginning of verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, Go. Go. He might be speaking to you. Go. Let's pray as we prepare to respond to God's word. Father, your word to us is awesome. It speaks right into our hearts. Lord, I pray for all of us, especially myself, that you would free us up to obey your command, that we would go to the mission to spread the good news. Help us recognize how you've prepared us for what we need to do. If there's something holding us back, Lord, I pray this week that you would knock it over. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you free us up to talk to that someone or to go to that place or to make that plan. Please do something amazing in our lives and in our community here at Cornerstone. We thank you that Satan is defeated, that Christ has conquered death. Would you give us strong hands to love our neighbor in deeds and give us clear speech that we would proclaim Christ in word. And as we respond to you in prayer and in song, Lord, we give you our all. We give you the things that we hold dear, even our finances, Lord. Give us generous hearts that we might share what we have and in doing so, share the good news to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.